comforting thought. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. My mind has been taken to this text over the last couple of days, and it is a historical account of the early church and some of the involvement in the early church. Acts chapter 17. Shortly after the Lord saved me and began dealing with me about Christian ministry, this is one of those texts that really got me excited. Acts chapter 17, we'll read just the first nine verses together this evening. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews, which believe not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. When they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Let's just pray together before we begin looking at this portion this evening. Father, we thank thee that we have been gathered here tonight beneath this tent. We're grateful for every person, from the little children all the way up to the oldest one here. We rejoice that we have been gathered together tonight. We're thankful that you are a God that is not a respecter of persons. No matter what culture we come from, no matter what accent we speak with, no matter what color our skin is, in thy eyes we are all the same. We thank thee that there is salvation offered tonight, that there is hope in what looks like a hopeless world. We thank thee for Jesus, our Savior. We're grateful for the testimony we've heard tonight, and we pray that after this evening together, there may possibly be another one who is able to testify that they have met the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Bless this meeting, we pray, and bless the preaching of thy word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What an amazing part of God's word. What an amazing indictment or accusation that these people have made against Paul and Silas, these early disciples. Can you imagine being accused of turning the world upside down? Glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind such a title or a label. 
that wouldn't bother me too much. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. They'd been hearing about these men. They'd followed the news reports. You could perhaps say every night at six o'clock when the news came on, they'd been hearing about these disciples that were causing trouble from village to village and town to town. And, and what they had hoped would not happen in their town had finally happened. They have come hither also. They've come here too. And the Bible says they've turned the world upside down. Now, actually, these men had gotten it wrong. You see, Paul and Silas hadn't turned the world upside down. They turned it right side up. Because the world is already upside down and is in need to be turned the right way up. And I think the majority of humanity looks around today and says, what on earth is wrong with this world? Everything seems to be backwards. Everything seems to be upside down. And there's only one message that really has the power to make everything right side up. And that's exactly the effect that these men had on this town of Thessalonica. They had turned it upside down. And by the way, can I say that's exactly the same effect that the gospel should still have today and could still have today. Gospel preaching is and can be earth-shattering business. It should be life-changing work. I think what a pity that most of us preachers do not turn the world upside down. I think sometimes we're too orderly to cause any disturbance anywhere. And we're too afraid to cause any disruption anywhere. And therefore, we oftentimes are afraid to offend anybody, and so we offend few, and consequently, we help few also. What a tragedy. But these men turned the world on its head, and their reputation had preceded them. Can you imagine before they ever got there, they had heard about it. And no doubt the people here at Thessalonica had already heard of how Jerusalem, if you remember in Acts chapter 5, had been filled with their doctrine. And I'm sure they heard about the devils that had been cast out and the little slave girl that had been healed or the prison doors. If you remember just the previous chapter, the prison doors that were shaken and opened. They'd heard about it. I'm sure they heard about the judges who were embarrassed at Philippi. And they were just hoping that they didn't come near to them. I wonder, I often wonder, where are the earth shakers today? You ever thought about that? Where are they today? Our, our Christian heritage has been filled with such men and women who have made such a difference. George Whitfield sh- certainly shook the earth when he preached, didn't he? They say that you could hear him from over a mile away when he preached. That was long before microphones and speakers. 30,000 people at one time could hear him preach. Can you imagine? Talk about an earth-shaking preacher. What about John Wesley, who rode up and down the country? 250,000 miles, they reckoned he covered up and down the United Kingdom on horseback. Not in a lovely, comfortable car with leather seats and heated seats and air conditioning. On horseback. What about J.C. Ryle, who pushed against... Uh, the, the norms, you could say, of the state church. Or William Booth. Some people are afraid to mention his name, but you can't, you cannot 
deny that God used him. He caused all sorts of problems marching with his marching bands through the city centers. What about D.L. Moody? Couldn't hardly read or write. When he applied for church membership at 17 years old back in the United States, they said the deacons rejected his application for membership and said we've never seen somebody so least likely to succeed in life, let alone in Christian things. D.L. Moody later became the greatest evangelist of his day. Perhaps one of the greatest evangelists of all of Christian history. Amazing. He had such a burden for children, D.L. Moody did, uh, that he wanted to be involved. And they said, well, get your own Sunday school. You want, to, you want to be involved in Sunday school? Well, get your own children, they told him. Okay. So he began to gather children from the slums of Chicago. He had gathered that many children. He had to get his own building. But he wasn't interested in teaching because he didn't think that was his calling. So he would gather all the children and he would organize a teacher to come and teach the children until one day the teacher didn't show up. So Mr. Moody had to teach himself and he found out that he had a God-given gift that he didn't even know about. D.L. Moody went from teaching children, he always loved children, to teaching, preaching to some of the largest crowds around the world. He came to this country and because he was uneducated, the folks at Oxford wouldn't even hear him. They laughed him to scorn. Never got really the chance in Oxford, but he went to Cambridge and it was a little bit different. They still mocked and laughed. But after several nights, the cold hearts began to soften. And that intellectualism was brought down. And the gospel broke through and revival came. What about Hudson Taylor? who stirred up all sorts of trouble in China, you could say, for the sake of the gospel. What about John the Baptist? He was always causing problems, wasn't he? Or Elijah. No king wanted to hear a man like that. Where are these kinds of believers today? Where's the preaching that made Felix tremble, if you remember? Or what about the kind of preaching that awakened the guilty conscience of Herod because of his sinful behavior? Or what about the kind of preaching in life that caused Darius to lay, lay awake all night uh, because he thought about Daniel being in the lion's den. Where are these kinds of men and this kind of preaching today? These men turned the world upside down. Now, let me tell you how it happened. It didn't happen because they were particularly well-groomed and well-educated men. It happened because of the message they carried. The power is not in the man. The power is in the message. And we have the same message today. The Bible says in verse number seven, I love this. I've underlined it in my scripture. These men who have brought an accusation, in fact, they drugged Jason and his other brethren out when they couldn't find Paul and Silas. They went into Jason's house and drugged Jason and these other Christian brothers out into the, to the city center, as it were. And it says in verse, uh, verse number seven, whom Jason hath received, they're speaking about how Jason entertained these men. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. By the way, that's a lie. Because I think every government who has ever had true followers of Christ beneath them have realized their best citizens have been Christian citizens who have upheld the law and honored God. But these, the, the lie says, these are, are those, uh, the scripture say in verse number six, pardon me, look at it. When they found them, they drew 
Jason and certain brethren to the rulers of the city, saying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. There is another king. And can I tell you, the message of Christianity begins with this, and this is where oftentimes tension has come with God's people and oftentimes governments. There's another king. Oh, if, if only rulers would see that Christians are law-abiding citizens who, who love humanity and love mankind and give honor to whom honor is due, even if those who are leading are wicked and evil men, they recognize the position itself. It's something to be honored, although the one in the position may be someone who is evil. We still know that God is in the business. He is in control. He is at work. He puts a king up and takes a king down. But we also know that when those who lead take it a little bit too far, God's children know that there's another king. And that has always caused friction. And this is the argument that they have used here. There's another king. Now, I'm not tonight going to take this in the direction of civil disobedience. But what I do want to say tonight is that there's another king besides the one you're serving today. Some of you say, well, I'm not serving a king. We have a queen. What's wrong with you? I understand that, but I'm talking about the majority of humanity live for themselves. They serve King me and whatever they want, they do. And whatever kind of clothes they want to buy, they buy and wherever they want to eat, they eat. And if they want it bad enough, they do it because at the end of the day, in their own eyes and most of humanity's eyes, I am king. But I want you to know there's another king. Because in serving yourself, you may not recognize it, but in serving yourself, you have a very cruel taskmaster. Because if you don't remember, yourself is rarely satisfied. Am I right? Rarely can you satisfy the awful tyrant of me, self. Because the second you get yourself what yourself wants, then yourself wants something better. We seem to serve King me. It's interesting. Backed up to verse number three, we're given the historical account of the message that they were speaking. What did it mean that there's another king? Well, we find it in verse number three, that when Paul came, he went first to the synagogue because he was going to begin with those who had some sort of a a familiarity with the God of the scriptures of the Old Testament. So he went with those who knew that there was a one God, a creator God, and he went to the, the ones who knew there was a Messiah coming. And he said unto them, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. And here's the message of our king. The message of king self says, I want everybody else to suffer to get me what I want. I don't care what it costs you. I don't care how inconvenient it is to you as long as I am not inconvenienced. Isn't that the way self often thinks? But the message of Christ is different. The message of the other king is different because the Bible says Christ must needs have suffered. He had to suffer. I don't know of too many kings throughout the history of humanity 
that saw their duty and responsibility to suffer on behalf of their subjects. But that is exactly the case with King Jesus. He had to suffer. Because if he didn't suffer, then all of humanity would be separated from this king for all eternity. Because we have gotten ourselves into a pickle, as it were. Our waywardness, our rebellion, our brokenness, our sinfulness has caused caused a separation between us and God. We were speaking in the city center and some of the men were preaching on the box yesterday. It was encouraging uh, to see some good interaction. And one lady, the conversation began of, uh, well, why is there such suffering in the world? And in fact, another couple came to me, was brought to me after and said, can you please talk to me about this? If there's a God and a good God, then why all of the suffering in the world? And I began to speak with them and I said, uh, uh, let's be honest. What do you think is the number one cause of suffering in the world today? And here were two unbelievers, two atheists, professing atheists. They said to me, well, really, it's, it's us, isn't it? Mankind. And we know it, don't we? We know the problem in the world is us. And this is why Jesus had to suffer because in order for this problem to be dealt with, if we are ever going to deal with the problem of humanity, the problem of man's heart, then man's heart must be changed. But I don't know about you. I've tried to change my heart. It doesn't seem to work. No matter how much soap you use and no matter how much motivational speeches you listen to, you just can't seem to do it. I need somebody outside of me. I need a physician, a doctor. And not just you, some of you may say you, you need a mental doctor. Not, not just a <laughs> mental doctor, a heart doctor. Amen. I was studying to be a cardiologist when the Lord saved me. And well, I'd only just begun first three years of preliminary work. But uh, God moved me from studying to be a heart doctor to being a physician of the souls. Amen. I'm still in, in, a, in a sense, some sort of a heart doctor. But this is what God desires to clean up. Because this is where the problem is. The problem is deep within the heart of every human being. And only Christ can deal with that. He is the great physician. He's come to heal the brokenhearted. Some of you tonight have been hurt. And there's only one who can heal that heart. You cannot heal it by retaliation. That only makes it worse. Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted. And so Christ had to suffer, the scripture said. And it goes on. Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. So the message that these men brought was that Jesus died. He suffered and died in my place because of my brokenness and my sin that he might offer unto me life because I'm dead spiritually. But the good news is he he rose again. And the other part of this message is that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Now, he's speaking to Jewish people who knew of a Messiah that was to come. He said, this Jesus is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the anointed one. He is the one. And this is the message of another king. You are not the one. I hate to break it to you. You are not the chosen one. You are not the anointed one. Jesus is. And we find our security, our election, our safety in him. Not because of me. 
This is Christ. Now, this little message turned the world upside down. Can you imagine? This simple message. Now, why did it cause such trouble? I'll tell you why. Because people don't want another king. People are happy with their own king. They don't want to live for anybody else but themselves. And don't you dare tell me that I need another king. And it caused trouble. Because part of being a Christian is recognizing we've offended our great God. And the only hope of reconciliation is through the finished work of Christ. Now I wonder tonight, before we go any further, do you know this other king? Do you know him? Is he your king? Is Jesus your king? Do you serve him? Now, what does it mean if he's your king? Well, you are one of his subjects, you could say. As I am living in this country and we have permanent residency in this country, then I am a subject of the queen of, of England, of the United Kingdom. Is Jesus your king? Do you serve him? Do you love him? The amazing thing about our king is he doesn't force himself on you. The king doesn't say, well, if you live in my land, King Jesus doesn't say you're going to pay taxes. So that's what the little bag is. Some people think that, don't they? The little bag going around is the taxes that Christians have to pay in order to be beneath King Jesus. That's not it at all. No, no, no. We serve him because we love him. We want to give our lives to him because we love him. We sang it a moment ago, that beautiful hymn. If I had a thousand lives to give, Lord, they should all be thine. If I could do it over again a thousand times, a thousand times I would give my life to Christ. And once you enter into that, you would say the same. If you've ever tasted and seen that the Lord is good, tonight you would say the same. If I had a thousand hearts, I'd give every one to Jesus as quickly as I could. Only this time I'd give it a lot sooner than I did this time, right? It's a different kind of a king. The Bible calls him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every once in a while, we look at the condition of the world around us and we're tempted to think, what's going on? But Psalm chapter 2 speaks about our king and says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of, of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Jesus. That's the King of Kings. They take counsel against him. And they say, let us break their bands asunder. We don't want this king. And cast away their cords from us. But the scriptures say in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. He's in control. He's not worried. So you and I shouldn't be worried. He's not nervous in heaven over the condition of the world right now. Now, I don't know about you. We, we said it a moment ago. I'd like to be used of God to turn the world upside down. But do you know there are consequences for such behavior? There always have been. There are consequences for being a faithful preacher of the word, a faithful declarer of the word, whether you be one who preaches in a pulpit or one who preaches on your doorstep or one who shares with your family. There have always been consequences. And those consequences are traced throughout the scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. 
earlier in the book of Acts chapter 14 and verse 5. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. That, that was the result of turning the world upside down. They were assaulted and stoned. In verse number 19 of Acts chapter 14, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. I want to turn the world upside down. Well, you better get a helmet. There are consequences for being used of the Lord in such a fashion. In Acts chapter 18 and verse number 12, and when uh, Gallio uh, was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Stoned, uh, assaulted, brought before the judgment seat, falsely accused. Acts chapter 19 and verse number 23 in the same time, there arose no small stir about that way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain into craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. They were making uh, statues of Diana. And when these preachers came along and said, look, Diana's dead. It's just a statue. Jesus is alive. It caused them to lose money. And so, moreover, you see in here that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that there be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. When Paul would have entered in into the people, the disciples suffered him not. And it goes on. Think about this. To live a life that turns the world upside down means to live a life on the run means to live a life when you may be the most happiest man on the world, but you're also the most wanted man on the world. You have the joy of Almighty God and the peace that passes all understanding, but you are wanted posters all over. And not because you're famous and people want to come necessarily to hear you. Acts chapter 21 and verse number 27, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. He's in danger. And the story goes on. I just want to encourage you tonight. that This message is really, if it is ever preached and ever believed, it is a message that will turn the world upside down. A.W. Tozer said, one day, somebody's going to come along and read this book and actually believe it. And then they'll turn the world upside down. Let it be us. May it be us. Tonight, if you're here and you're still serving King Self, my advice to you is to look unto Jesus. Serve him. He is worthy. He's the most wonderful savior that you could ever imagine. They sang about it here a moment ago. Think of it. The Lord and King, the creator of everything, loves me with a love that won't stop. That's the kind of king we have. 
Are you serving him tonight? If not, I urge you, come to him. He had to die for your sins. He was buried and rose again that you could be forgiven, pardoned, that you could have new life, that you could be born again. That's what it means. Sometimes Christians say you've got to be born again. You think you're a bunch of nutters. What does that mean? It means you need new life. You need another chance. And that's what Christ offers tonight. Christian, if you have experienced a new birth, then may God make us those who turn the world upside down for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this message. A very simple message. But a message when it is preached by the power of thy spirit is able to turn this world upside down. And we pray that amongst this congregation there would arise men and women who believe thy word and love thee enough to testify to all that we meet that there is another king, King Jesus, who is worthy to be worshipped and praised. I, I pray for the one tonight or maybe the many tonight that do not know thee yet or lacking that assurance, lacking that confidence. They're not quite sure if Jesus is their king. May tonight, may they be humbled before thee, confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in their heart that Christ died for them. We ask of the Lord in mercy, save someone. Challenge thy people, charge us, Lord, to move forward in grace and truth for thy honor and glory. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake.